I thought I was in a New Orleans funeral there for a minute. Good job, Will. Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, we want to turn to Proverbs chapter, yes, you guessed it, 14. Now, last week, we looked at four really good principles for life, and I just want to kind of remind you of them, because everything we're going through here in these chapters always will tie together. We, we looked under the concept of the fear of the Lord, and we talked about having a strong confidence. Then we talked about uh, our lives as a fountain of life for others to to find the water of life and to drink from. Then we talked about how that you can accomplish something for the Lord, and we use the example of Solomon and his son Rehoboam. Solomon brought honor to the people, but then Rehoboam came up and basically destroyed everything that his father had done. So we looked at how that you can accomplish something for the Lord, and then sometimes uh, it can get destroyed because whoever follows you um, don't really take the instructions that you gave them. And then probably one of the great principles that would help everybody, all of us, is the fact of being slow to wrath uh, versus a hasty spirit. We talked about that for quite a while. Now, today we're going to move into basically one single verse is all the farther we're going to get today. And uh, yet, I'm going to tell you, it's a great verse that has a lot of depth to it. I I tell you and try to show you throughout our time together the good ways to study the Bible and one of, the, one of the ways that you would study the Scriptures is what we call word studies. And word studies are, are really invaluable, and they, they just have a lot of things that you can get from them. And I like to, when I preach and teach you something, I, I don't like just to give it to you. I like to show you why I'm doing what I'm doing and how I do it so you can learn to do it too. And today is going to be a great example if you're a young Christian or somewhere that's you know, in the process and you want to really understand what it means to be able to take a word study. I want to show you today what that means. This will be a great example of a, what a word study from the Bible really is. Taking a word <laughs> and studying it. I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> Taking a word and then working it through the Scripture. This is not going to be a good day today. I want you to know that. Now, I want to read Proverbs chapter 14, verse 30, and it says this. A sound heart is in the life of the flesh, but envy the rottenness of bones. John Christensen, you stand up in the back there and ask God's blessing and preach, uh, pray for us today as we preach the Word of God. Congratulate John and Bessie. They got a new grandbaby. A little German shepherd. I saw it in the car coming home yesterday. <laughs> now, the Bible says a sound heart is the life of the flesh. Now, in a physical sense, you know, that's absolutely true and w- without a doubt. As far as the life of the flesh, our life, is concerned, the heart of man is absolutely central. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 says that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And that's true. But in our bodies, that life of the flesh, the blood, has to be pumped through that body on a continual basis. 
And, of course, that all comes through uh, our heart. I, I, there's no other single organ more essential to the existence of man than, than his heart in a physical sense. Because when your heart goes, you go. You know, I don't know if you noticed or not that in a lot of things, when God made man, he gave man two of everything, basically, not everything, but many things. So if he lost one, he could still function. That's why he gave you two eyes. You lose one, you can still see. He gave you two hands, two arms, two legs, two ears. Uh, he, he, and man, two kidneys, a lot of things that he, two lungs, a lot of things that he gave man, he gave in, in, in twos. <laughs> and they're still coming to mind. But anyway, <laughs> he only gave us one of some things. And the heart, he only gave us one heart. And that heart is so central in the life of man that it, 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 we use it to illustrate many, many different things. We live in the Midwest, in Missouri, so we like to call it the what? Heart of America, you see. And uh, when we start to deal with problems and issues, somebody will come in and they'll sit down and they'll start to talk to me and I'm getting the feeling that I'm not getting the real problem here. All I'm getting is symptoms. I'll say to them, you know what? Let's get to the real heart of the problem. In romance, today's Valentine's Day. Hearts all over the place. You got probably cards with hearts on them, flowers with hearts on them, and everybody says the same thing. I love you with all my heart. And you know what? It's never I love you with my kidneys. It's never I love you with my eyes. It's never I love you with with my brain. It's never I love you with all of my mind. It's always the heart because the heart is central to man. Do you like salad, do you, ladies, man, gentlemen? Well, the heart of the lettuce is the best part. Getting in there where it's... The best part. Now, physically speaking, and you know this is true, you can live with a lot of bad issues and conditions. I mean, there are, you, you can be brain dead and, and still be alive. That'll take care of most of God's people at this point in time. <laughs> you can be paralyzed and yet still be alive. You can be blind and deaf and yet still be in function. You can be a quadriplegic and, 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 and lose all your limbs or part of your limb and still uh, be able to function. You could be in, a, I've read one time where a guy was in a coma for 20 years and then he just woke up one morning. But when you get heart disease or you have a heart attack or a stroke or the doctor says you got clogged arteries, no blood going through your heart, if something doesn't happen, if somebody doesn't do something in time, you're going to die because when the heart goes, you go. I must tell you, I'm absolutely amazed at the medical world with all that they can do with the human heart. Really, with anything. It's, in, it's incredible. It's incredible. They put in plastic valves. They'll even take pieces of a pig and make a valve for your heart. And people don't know why they use pigs, but the pig is, a, is an animal that its body is almost as close to a human as you can get. So they use those things. They put in stints. They put in balloons. I have no idea what I'm talking about, but I read this thing, and I don't know what a stint is if one come up and stinted me with it. <laughs> Open heart surgery, heart transplants. Man, you mean how incredible that is? What amazing, incredible feat. I, I, I remember years ago, this is a true story. I was just a young guy, and I had come to Kansas City and was just a nobody staff member. I was a, a, on, a, on a large church. And there was a whole staff of pastors with a senior pastor, you know. 
And he called a meeting one time. Uh, on, we got a, a, a note that there was a meeting today because we had a doctrinal issue we all had to discuss and, and come to terms with because uh, there were some things that it might come up and it was a vital issue. And the first heart transplant had, had taken place four or five years earlier. Anybody know who performed the first heart transplant in America? Anybody know his name? Raise your hand. Anybody know? Who? No, no, it wasn't. Close. Who was the first one? Christian Bernard, South African doctor. He did the first heart transplant. And and, And it had just happened like five or six years earlier, and the pastor now is calling us all together because... We now are faced with something that could be an incredible impact to Christianity. And here was what it was about. If a saved man had to get a heart transplant and got a heart transplant from an unsaved man, is he still saved? We were there for three hours. The goofiest thing, it reminded me of the dark ages with the Roman Catholic Church. If a rat broke into the sanctuary and ate the Eucharist that had been dedicated, does a rat live forever? I mean, that, 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 it was absolutely the most stupid thing you had ever heard. And back then, I was just a new kid on the block. I just kept my mouth shut. You know, I, I learned more by listening then than I did opening my mouth. But I came away from that meeting and a few others after that, and I knew as far as the Bible was concerned, I was in trouble. And I was taught that where I was taught that was spiritual anatomy 101. But they had no idea the concept of a body, soul, and spirit. How ridiculously is it to think that if a saved man got a heart transplant and got the heart of an unsaved man, that he'd now be unsaved? There's a physical body with physical parts, and then there's a spiritual body with spiritual parts. Now, he may be able to transplant your physical heart, but nobody on this earth can transplant your spiritual heart. I mean, go to Luke chapter 16. It's right in there. The Bible says the rich man died and was buried. His body's in the ground. But it says in hell he lift up his eyes. Being in torment, he could feel. He remembered. He had a brain. There's a spiritual body that you have, and there's a physical body that you have. Now, when we talk about this great passage here about a sound heart, there's a spiritual side to it. And I want to talk for a moment, talked about the physical. I want to talk to you for a moment that when a Christian has heart trouble. You know, when you head for trouble, when I head for trouble, when we don't want to go to church anymore, or we get our nose bent out of joint about something, or something happens, doesn't matter what it is, and you start to think that, that, you know, it's this or it's that, fundamentally, do you know what it is? You've just had a heart attack. And when a child of God, you and me, start to have things in our lives that lead uh, to our spiritual disaster, and we become dead to the things of God, we don't care anymore, we just look at it and say, well, you know what, I don't think God is who he is, or I don't think this or that or this, that. You have now had a heart attack. Your heart has been attacked by the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's just that simple. 
Matthew 22, 37 says, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul. And in a spiritual sense, heart disease for a Christian, the Bible talks about a lot of it. It talks about it in Psalms 119, verse 70, somebody having fat around the heart. Your doctor, in a physical sense, will say that's high cholesterol causes that. In Luke 21, 26, the Bible talks about somebody having heart failure. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 30, the Bible talks about somebody having a weak heart in a spiritual sense. Exodus chapter 7, verse 14, talks about somebody having a hardened heart. And in Jeremiah 9, 14, and Jeremiah 79, the Bible talks about a corrupt heart and a wicked heart. All kinds of heart conditions for the child of God today that you can get. And it will affect and it will affect your flesh to what you either do for God or you don't do for God. Or what you once did for God, but now you suddenly don't want to do it anymore. Now our text today says, a child of God to live his life in this world, the flesh, will have to have a sound heart. Spiritually speaking, sound. A stable heart. A fixed heart. An unmovable heart. An established heart. Rock solid in something. Now that's where we should all either be today or in the process of wanting to get to there, to that point. And today I want to show you the simple process to get to a sound heart. Just a basic word study, but a great word study. A place in your life that you're fixed. A place in your life that your heart is unmovable, yet you're not unflexible. Your heart is sound, but yet you're not prideful. Your heart is sound and it's fixed and it's unmovable, but you're not stubborn. You're not bullheaded. It's a sound heart toward God, the things of God, but the right things of God. Now, we know that the Christian life is nothing more than a building program. It's simple. It's not complicated. We like to make the Christian life so complicated today. It's really not. In the Bible, you find simply seven stages of spiritual growth. You start out as a baby. Hopefully someday in a spiritual sense, you'll graduate to being an elder, which someone who really helps the pastor as an overseer and works within the church and does many of the things that many of you do. Uh, The irony of most churches is the fact that they have the wrong building program. They're so busy about building new buildings, they never worry about building people. And the real church of Jesus Christ cares nothing about the building, but cares everything about the people. They don't worry about building some Taj Mahal. They worry about taking people and giving people everything that they need to be what God wants them to be. And uh, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11, it says that when you got saved, you laid a foundation. That foundation is Jesus Christ. And we know that we're to build on that foundation, but it also says in that chapter that we're to build a wise master builder. And one of the greatest examples of that in the Bible, if you want to go back and, or just write it down, maybe you don't have to go back to it, is 1 Kings chapter 6 in that chapter, but particularly in verse 38. Because in 1 Kings chapter 6, we have the building, Solomon building God's temple. And if you know anything about the story at all, you know that David wasn't permit, permitted to build it, but Solomon was. And you also know that the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, that what your body is, the temple of the Holy Ghost, was it's you which you have of God, you're not your own, you're bought with a price. 
And I've given you many, many times the parallel between the literal temple in the Old Testament and the spiritual temple of your body. It's the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, the kingdom of God versus the kingdom of heaven. In the Old Testament, there was a literal temple that was in Jerusalem that was fixed. And all of the world came to that temple. In the New Testament, there is no fixed place. This church is no different than any other building in town. What makes it different this morning is the temples of God that are sitting here this morning. And where in the Old Testament, the whole world came to the temple. In the New Testament, we as God's building, as God's temple, take our temple to the whole world. That's the difference. That's the difference. And each one of us will build uh, in that and build those things in our lives. And when you begin to read back there in 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 38, it says that it took seven years to build God's temple. Now, I personally think that's a great model. Years ago, when I had just gotten right with God and really wanted to learn the Word of God, God put a man in my life by the name of Glenn Mays. He's dead now, but Glenn Mays had a burden for Jehovah Witnesses. And old Glenn Mays would go out and he'd take me out almost every uh, Tuesday night and we'd go out and he'd, he had a whole list of JWs that he'd go visit and try to talk to and he had a burden and he really knew his Bible. And he's the one that put me onto this and he said, you know what, Bob, I know you want to learn the Bible and I know that you're probably going to learn the Bible, but let me show you what God gave me. And he took me back to 1 Kings chapter 6 and he said, you know what, Bob, if you get the right plan and you get what God wants you to have the way God wants you to have it, you ought to have a good handle and be everything that God wants you to be and built the way God wants you to be built in seven years because that's how long it took them to build a temple. I looked at that and I thought to myself, that's an incredible thing. And I said, well, Glenn will help me. So he put out a, a seven-year program for me that I followed. And, it, 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 and I, years ago, and, I, and I, I began to look at the first year. And the first year, I really dedicated myself to getting the learning the Word of God that first year, I got the two identities down in the Bible, the Old Testament nation of Israel and the New Testament church. I got down the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven, thoroughly understood it. I realized that they were the key to everything. I spent that whole year just nailing those things down that first year. The second year, the second year I began to divide out the books into the proper division, the order of the books. I laid out the light out, the 11 dispensations. And then the third and fourth year was my most challenging two years. It really was. That's where I now began to divide out the chapters, divide out the verses. This is where I began to mark down each thing doctrinally, inspiration, and historically. This is where I get to mark key words that I've given you and put in our books back there. This is where I began to see the value of the seven series. And I began to go through the seven, uh, the, the seven mysteries and the seven, uh, the seven churches and the, and the seven baptism and the seven resurrections and, and go through all of the seven judgments and then through the seven trees in the garden, the seven marriages, the seven laws, the seven key Old Testament men. On and on it went that third and fourth year, fifth year. The fifth year, I began to really get down the, uh, the doctrinal of the millennial reign of Christ, the tribulation, and the church age, and understand the rapture. This is where I began to learn about the 18 types of the Antichrist and the 21 types of Christ found in the Bible. The sixth and the seventh year, now I had a pretty good sound mind by the sixth year. And my sixth and seventh year, I devoted myself to church history, the cults, false religion, Everything out there, and this is where I started, as I told you a while back, I began to devour and read everything I could get my hands on. 
Because I knew the Bible says to learn the Word of God, it was going to take a workman. A workman needed not to be ashamed. But I also realized that you can get it in seven years if you're willing to dedicate yourself. I'm not going to stand up here and tell you that you're going to learn all of the Bible in seven years. What I am telling you, in seven years' time, you do it the way the book says to do it by the model it gives you, you'll have a sound mind. But there's trouble afoot. When we begin to examine Solomon building God's house. And this is the reason why so many of God's people never get to where they need to get with the Bible. Because in 1 Kings 6.38, he says it took seven years to build God's house. But in 1 Kings 7.1, next chapter, we're told that when Solomon built his own house, it took him 13 years. And simply he spent more time on building the things in his life than he did the things for God. And that will always be a problem. You know, Israel had the same issue. You go back to the book of Haggai. The book of Haggai is a post-captivity book after they go back to 70 years' captivity. And, and Haggai is cleaning their clock because they went back in Ezra and Nehemiah. They began to rebuild and put everything back, just like so many of God's people began to put their own life back in order. But now suddenly it has been 16 years. The work has been stopped. And it's a picture of a child of God who gets saved, starts to grow, and then for whatever reason gets a heart attack. For whatever reason, gets a blockage of the blood. For whatever reason, begins to have a stroke. Begins to have heart failure. Begins to have all of the heart conditions spiritually. And now they stood 16 years without ever touching the temple of God. And if that wasn't bad enough, he gets into them because he says, you know what you're doing? You're taking the things, the materials that God gave you to build his house, and you're building your own house with them. This is the problem with God's people today. God has given you everything. God has provided you for everything. We sit around and snivel about what we don't have, feeling sorry for ourselves, when you should have been past the process where you ought to be taking the things that God has given you to build your house and building a sound heart with it. But we don't. We don't. Unfortunately, the majority of God's people today are not sound in most aspects of their life. But the goal of each of you should be to get to the place of a sound heart. Now, when you build people toward that goal, and that's that's what we do here, you follow a natural biblical process found in the Word of God. You don't get it out of somebody's book. You don't get somebody's outline. You go to the greatest book that was ever written on how to build God's temple. And in the Old Testament, it was a temple in Jerusalem. And in the New Testament, it's your body. If you want the premier book on building a strong heart, a sound heart in your life, this is the book. But there's a process. And, 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 and curiously enough, the process is found in the books in the Bible that are given to train young men and young ladies. The books that are written by Paul that are called, as we know them, the pastoral epistles. And each one of them will build on the next one, and all of them will lead to a sound heart. Now, I might say that many of you here this morning, in all honest and all fairness, many of you here this morning are somewhere in this process. You really are. 
Some of you have been around for a while. Man, you've already got a sound heart. Some of you are in that process where you're moving toward that. Some of you are maybe just been around for a couple of years or a year or six months or whatever, and that's what you want in your life. And I also must say today to some of you, it's very obvious from your face, you're having a heart attack while I speak. Heart problems. They'll always get you. Well, you don't know what it says, so it's a heart problem. Well, I think this, and I heard something, heart problem. Well, I don't like this, and that, heart problem. Gets you every time. See how you build on that? Heart problem. Heart problem. Heart problem. I'm going to do it one more time, but I'm afraid to fall over the thing there, so I won't do it. Now, each one of these will build on the next one in a progression. Yes, they all tie together, and they're quite incredible, and they'll all lead you to a sound heart. You want a sound heart? Here's how you get it. Now, let me just say this, and this is all kind of preliminary stuff, just so you know, in the Bible, the heart of God will be Psalms 119. Just so you don't have that and know that already. 176 verses, each verse deals with some aspect of the Word of God in your life of loving it. It's the heart of the Bible. So when you want to talk about getting God's heart, it's Psalms 119, plain and simple. 176 verses, each with a different aspect on loving that book. And for a child of God, there should never be any heart attacks, never be any blocked arteries, never no be strokes for the child of God. Psalms 119 is your aspirin a day. They say an aspirin a day keeps a heart attack from happening. There's your book. Now let's begin to look at these. Number one, when you start to build people, and that's the key to building a church. The church is not a building. Most guys don't understand that today. And I've never really understood why they don't understand it. I hate the word to use stupid, but it just keeps coming into my mouth. The church is not a building. The church is people. You don't build buildings, you build people. When you work at building people and you need a bigger building, God will take care of it and give it to you. He has his job, you has yours. Your job, my job is to build people. His job is to get you the building that you need. Problem is, they don't want the one that God wants to give them. They want one because they think they're in the millennium. I'm done with that. I'm off that now. Now, when you start to build people, you start with a foundation of truth. And that's unheard of today. No foundation of truth. And when you don't have a foundation of truth, it'll lead God's people to get caught up and focused on some of the stupidest stuff you ever saw in your life. I grew up all my life in Christianity, and I've seen people who never understand the difference between personal preferences and doctrinal convictions. And, And you see it with people who went around trying to preach legalism. That if you wear a suit and tie here this morning, you're spiritual. And if you just dress like you, you're not as spiritual as the guy in the suit and tie. Now, you laugh at that, but that's what they teach and that's what they think. I've known pastors that says nobody will preach in my pulpit that doesn't wear a suit and tie. Like, that makes him preach better? I mean, it may make him look better, but it ain't going to make him preach better. And the guy says, well, I just think you ought to look nice. What is wrong with the way I look this morning? 
Now we got a problem. Look nice to who? You see where I'm going? Now you think God cares what you have on this morning? As long as you have something on this morning? You got to be real careful preaching to the 21st century crowd. You think God cares what you got on this morning? You see, man looketh on the outward appearance. God looks on your heart. But that's where we get to. So our first aspect of having a sound heart will be to have sound doctrine. 1 Timothy 1.10 says, Timothy warned that people will teach you contrary to sound, sound doctrine. 2 Timothy, Timothy was told in 4.3 to, uh, that a time would come when people will not endure sound doctrine. And you know what? I like words. To me, the whole Bible is simply words. When I see a word, boy, I love that word endure. It says endure sound doctrine. Now, you know what that means? May I translate that for you into a 21st century American language? That means that some of the doctrines you face up to, you may not like. You got to endure them. Somebody asked Mel Sabaka one time, are you enjoying your salvation? Are you enduring your salvation? You know what his answer was? I'm enjoying my enduring. And there'll be some things in that Bible that I don't like. You don't like. But when you love the book, you enjoy enduring them. Because you know it's for your good. Oh, it's a great word. Titus 1.9 says, holding fast the faithful word, as he hath been taught, that he may be able to, uh, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayer. Gainsayer is somebody who opposes truth. You see, a Christian can have all the personal preferences he wants. And I want to make something clear. I'm all for you having personal preferences. I have personal preferences. There's some things I don't like. But I never preach on them. You know why? Because they're not doctrinal issues. They're my personal preferences of what I like and what I don't like. And, you know, some, there's some, some music I don't like. There's, there's some things that I look at and I just don't care for. But there's nothing doctrinal about it. We all have personal preferences. That's fine. But our true stand for the Word of God has to be on what is based on doctrine, not my personal preference. Now, here's the problem. Unfortunately, most people base and judge their own spirituality on their personal preferences. You don't dress like me, so I'm more spiritual than you. You go here, I won't go there, I'm more spiritual than you. And you see, that's going to get you in trouble every time because those kind of people have no foundation of truth. They have a false foundation. This is the reason they don't, they don't know the Bible. There's no foundation, no doctrinal basis. So they use their personal preferences that will always get you in trouble. I want you to remember two things. The key to your belief system, whatever you believe, the key to our belief system is one word. It's the word consistency. People will watch what you say and see if you're consistent, and because you have no basis of truth, they'll see your inconsistency. I I tell this to couples all the time that are trying to get their marriages back together. I'll show you how to spend time together. 
You got to spend time in the Bible together or praying together. But these people have been totally dysfunctional and haven't done it. It's unrealistic for me to say, you need to pray with your wife every day. Because you know why? They'll never be able to do that. So if I say, pray with your wife, put on a calendar three times a week starting out. This is when you pray. You're better off being consistent with three times a week than making a grandiose statement we're going to do it every day and not being consistent. You know what's wrong with parents and their kids? Parents are inconsistent. Your kid knows exactly, exactly. He counts them on his fingers. How many times you say, this is the last time I'm going to tell you. Last time I'm going to tell you, brother and sister. Last time I'm going to tell you. Last time I'm going to tell you. Johnny, the last time I'm going to tell you. Johnny, the last time. All right, we got to do it now. (laughs) He sees your inconsistency. Do you want your child to obey you the first time you say something to them? Then why don't they? Are they deaf? No, you're inconsistent. I understand. I get it. I'm inconsistent in many things. But I'm telling you, the key to your belief system is one word, consistency. Are you consistent with what you believe? Is it based on doctrine or is it based on your own personal preference? Now, here's the two things. Personal preferences that we hold will never have a consistency. Doctrinal position that you hold from the Bible will always have consistency. I'll give you an example. I used to preach down in Joplin, and there was a pastor down there that I preached for a couple of times, and I was going down to preach for him on a weekend, and he called me on the phone, and he said, you all ready to come? And I said, I am. I'm ready to come down there. And he said, would you do me a favor? And I said, sure. What do you need? He says, when you preach, will you drop in somewhere in your sermon to my people that they need to stop going to the casino boats to eat at the buffet? I said, why, is the food bad or what? I mean, I knew where he was going. Now, first of all, I don't appreciate somebody using me to whip his people because he don't have the, the do it. Uh, that, no, I didn't, no, no, I swallowed wrong and didn't get... Courage was what I was going to say. (coughs) (coughs) Reflux, flex, flux. I don't appreciate that. Now, that's his personal position. I die for defending his personal position. If he feels that way, he has every right to feel that way. But you know what? You can't make that a doctrine. And you know why you can't make that a doctrine? Because you can't be consistent with it. But you don't, these guys have no basis of truth. They never see past their own personal thing. And he judges his spirituality and the lack of spirituality based on where you eat. So I had a little fun with him. I said, well, what's the problem? He said, well, there's booze and gambling. And my people need to know they support it uh, uh, by, by, by spending their money there. And I said, oh, wow. I said, that's good. I said, where'd you get your gas at? Every gas station I ever be in sells booze and sells lottery tickets. 
See, you're thinking because there's not big, bright, shining lights and there isn't people walking around with cocktails and there isn't one-armed bandits out there that there's a difference between you going in there and getting your gas here. There is no difference. You cannot be consistent. You just can't. I shop at Hy-Vee, your hometown shoppers. I love Hy-Vee. But you know what? They got the biggest booze wine section you ever saw in your life. And it's connected to the main store. Somebody says, well, you need to abstain from all appearance. Where do I go get my groceries? How, if I come out the door that is closest to the winery? <laughs> I grew up in an era where <clears throat> long hair was sin for a man. Now, styles have changed. And, but when I day, the guys had really long hair. And it was preaching where preachers just went to seed on preaching on long hair. I love Dr. Ruckman with all my heart and pray for him every day that he goes home to be with the Lord. But I must say, he's got some of the most idiot stick people down there you ever saw in your life. We had one of our guys that I've known for years and years and years who went down to be one of his blowouts, you know, and he had... Longer hair than we all have. Probably your hair's not long. Yours is, but probably as long as his hair, which is not long. It looks good. God knows I wish I could get there. <clears throat> but my guy went in, and you know this is true, because you told me the story. Just so they know I'm not lying. Because I do have a tendency to lie. <clears throat> he asked one of the guys, he asked one of the guys where the bathroom was, restroom. And the guy looks at him and says, well, we have two. Which one do you want? <laughs> See, I grew up in that. I grew up with guys like Ted Larson. You don't even know who these guys are. They would get teenagers together on a youth rally, and they'd bring in, and they'd bring in all their rock music records, and they'd burn them, and they'd burn them, and put them in the fire, and they'd do all of this, you know, and they'd, they'd, they'd say, oh, we've got a great victory, you know, we got all rid of the devil's music. I get it, I get it, I get it, I get it. But you know what? Then you'll sit down and listen to Beethoven or Brahms, or you'll listen to uh, Wagner. The most demonic music you ever heard in your life was put out by Wagner. The Rod of the Valkyries, are you kidding me, demons? But that's okay. I grew up in an era where you didn't, go to, you didn't go to movies. But in the churches every once in a while, when Bob Jones University would come out with a great movie, they would show it in church. And the guy, people would scratch their head and say, well, what's the difference between going to a movie in a theater and going to a movie here? And the difference, they would say, is, well, this is not a movie. That's a movie. This is a film. See? In other words, when you say movie, God goes. When you say film, God goes. You can't be consistent. I was sitting on a stage one time watching a guy preaching at a youth rally, and I was laughing to myself how stupid this whole thing was. And he was preaching on long hair. And he was talking about long-haired hippies. And he was, you know, I mean, you don't even know what a hippie is. There ain't been a hippie since the dinosaurs died. But, but, but he was going on, and he was, well, he was working up a sweat. And he was, he was he, he one of those guys that had a, he was kind of bald up front, but all his hair went back, you know. 
And he was sweating and everything. And I'm sitting there and he's just railing on these kids about long hair, being a, being a sissy and being a woman. Why don't you be a real man? And he's just sweating and he's going to town. And he turned around and his hair had, had, had gotten all down in front of his face. Immediately. I got it. The issue wasn't long hair. The issue was placement of a long hair. God is angry. God's okay with it. You can't be consistent. Inconsistency will always be in every preference we have, and without doctrine, it'll never work. I was preaching in Pennsylvania one time down in Amish country. And I was staying with a family, kind of out a ways. And Amish people were all around. I would run in the morning, you know. And the guy that I was staying with was a car salesman. And he was telling me, you know, that some of the Amish are allowed to have automobiles. But when they buy them from him, the, the preacher, the head preacher, has to come in to the car dealership and make them paint all the chrome black. Because there can be nothing shiny that looks like the world. And I'm thinking to myself, you got a $100 million computer system inside that ignition that runs everything in that car. But you're worried about shiny metal. And now that the shiny metal's gone, it's okay to have the million-dollar computer in your dashboard running everything. It's inconsistent. I was running one morning, and strange things I saw. I saw an old Amish guy out there, and I thought, I'm going to go up and talk to him. I love to be, talk to people, find out why they believe. And I walked up to him and I said, uh, you know, sir, I said, uh, I, I said, I love Amish country. I said, I, I just, I'm from Ohio. And I said, there's a lot of Amish back there. We got a nice guy we talked. And I said, I said, is it true that you guys really just don't have a lot of worldly things? And he said, no, we abstain from that because we think that, you know, that's what Christ would have us to do. And we don't want to be part of the world in any way, shape or form. I said, so you don't, I, he said, we just have the basics. I said, and I went through a list of whole things, didn't have, and they made their own clothes. You know, he had the beard, had the corn hat, you know, and the bib overall, all handmade. And I went through a whole list of things. Nope, we don't have that. Nope, we don't have that. And then I, I saw off the telephone pole phone lines going into his barn. And I said, well, I asked if he had a phone. You said you didn't. I said, isn't that a phone line going into there? He said, well, I don't have a phone in the house. I have one in the cow barn. Cows like to order pizza on Friday night like that. I guess that we all do. But you see, it's inconsistent. You can't be consistent. You just can't. I mean, it's absolutely. I've known people who said, well, I don't have a television. Hey, that's okay. If you're, I've had guys say, well, I just don't want my folks. I don't want a television in my house because what's on there. And I said, that's great. But you know what? They got the internet. Now, let me just say something to you. Whatever a television is or how wicked it can be or how wicked it is, the internet is a hundred billion, trillion, million, zillion times more satanic than any boob tube you ever had in your house. Inconsistent. I've had people that say, well, we don't celebrate Christmas or we don't celebrate, we don't celebrate Halloween. But you do birthdays. 
You know where the first birthday started? Way back with the Persian, 5 B.C. You know there's two birthdays in the Bible, and both times somebody got killed on them? You know birthdays doctrinally aren't for today? Can't be consistent. I'll give you another good example. Then I'll get done with this so you can feel better. <laughs> Remember this lady down in wherever she was when they had gay marriage? And she was a record keeper, a court person in the courthouse, and her job was an issue marriage license. And she got up and made national world headlines. Because I'm a Christian, I'm not going to give marriage license to gay people uh, because it's, you know, it's, it's just ungodless, godless, and I'm not going to do it. Hey, every politician on the planet got down there and got their picture taken with her. Every, 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 everybody, every evangelical, every, all across it. Mike Huckabee, all of them were saying, we take her stand. Boy, she's a brave woman. She's this, she's that. She's a brave woman. Hey, we all have our opinion. May I give you mine? She's an idiot. <laughs> you know why she's an idiot? Because she's inconsistent. Right. Now, I believe she's saved, and I believe she probably loves the Lord, and I'm not picking on her and all. But you know what? I think she was married four or five times. You know, you who throw rocks should not live in glass houses. And on top of that, I believe gay marriage is, is terrible, wrong. I believe the whole nine yards. But I'm consistent. If I was in her position and I was going to make a stand, and I think it's a dumb stand based on Romans chapter 13, but then I'm doctrinal. But if I was in her position and I wanted to be really, really consistent, you think it's any more demonic for two, un, two homosexuals to get married than it is for a saved person and a Christian to get married? Bible says in 1 Corinthians that a saved person marries an unsaved person and you're mixing Christ with the devil. Can you get more demonic than that? Now, if you're true to your convictions, why are you not refusing to give them out? Why aren't you saying when they come in for a license, are you saved? Are you both saved? No, I'm not saved. Well, I am. I used to go to a Baptist church. I was saved at camp. Well, I can't give you a marriage license. It's against the Bible. You know why she'll do one and out the other? How about Muslims when they come in and want to get married? How about unsaved people in general? Bible says that unsaved people, God doesn't recognize their marriage. They're like unsaved animals, or animals in a barnyard. God doesn't pay any attention to it. Why aren't you fighting that? You see, her problem is this. She gets to pick what is right and what is wrong based on her preference. And she gets to that position based on her personal preference. She picks and chooses which one is right and which ones are bad. Doctrine won't let you do that. Doctrine is understanding the great teaching of Romans chapter 13. Why one man esteems the day this way and another man esteems the day this way. Why it's all right to do this. Why it's all right maybe not to do this. And if somebody does, it doesn't make you any more spiritual. And you don't make a doctrinal issue out of it. Hey, each one of you right now who work for a company, if you actually look inside your company to what they invest their money and their holdings in or who really runs that company as a parent company of a parent company, you would have a heart attack. What are you going to do, quit your job? See, doctrine will teach you how to balance out 1 Corinthians six twelve, where it says all things are lawful, but not all things are expedient. Then he turns right around and says in the same verse, all things are lawful, but I won't be brought under the power of any. Then he says again in chapter 10, verse 23, all things are lawful, 
but not all things will edify. He uses three words that give you the key how to do what you need to do. That's doctrine. So the number one thing, 2 Timothy 3.16, the Bible's profitable for is to separate the real issues from the misguided issues, personal preferences. And today you find in the Christian world two concepts. You find people who do Christian things and are spiritual things, or you find people who do biblical things and doctrinal things. I mean, what did Paul mean in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, when he says, I become all things to all men that I might save some? Is he just saying whatever you want to do? Now, we got churches in town that have Bible study called Beer in the Bible because they want to reach people. So they think that they can, they can go out and have beer in a beer joint someplace and have a Bible study because that's where the sinners are, so you go get them. In other words, I'll become a sinner too to go get the sinner. Does that mean you go down to your local strip club and go inside and pass out tracts? Boy, there'd be a line signed up for that ministry if we started it. I mean, what did Paul mean when he said that? And those kind of things in life, I ask you, where's the line? And those kind of things, is there even a line? You bet there is. And the doctrine's found in Romans chapter 14 and 15, that's the doctrine, and an example's found in Acts chapter 21. You get those two together, you know exactly where the line is, and you know exactly when to do what and when not to go one step further. But who knows anything about doctrine today? All right, the second thing. Now, sound doctrine will lead you to a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7 says, For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of the power and of love and of a sound mind. Your thought process is now based on Bible teaching, doctrine, its principles, not your own personal preferences that are riff with inconsistency. You have an absolute, you have ability now to make solid decisions, good choices, put a process of real value in your life. You now let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, 5 says. Your thinking process is solid, it's strong, because it's based on biblical principles, not your personal preferences. In Ephesians chapter 6, where it talks about the whole armor of God, armor, armor of God the Bible says, have your loins girt about with truth. Loins in the Bible will represent a man's strength. We're talking about being strong, being sound. We're talking about having a sound mind. You want to play another word study? Go over to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, and see what that truth, uh, your strength really is. He says in that passage, wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Your strength as a Christian will be a sound mind. That sound mind is based on sound doctrine. Now, the third thing. Now, sound doctrine, and then a sound mind will always lead to the third thing, and that is a sound faith. A sound faith is simply knowing why you believe what you believe, having understanding. God's people are very weak in the faith today. They have a heart condition. They believe the right thing, they just don't know why they believe it. Titus chapter 1 verse 13 says, This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Here again, it goes back to the Bible doctrine, number one. 
Bible says faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God, Romans 10, 17. <clears throat> Many of God's people make a terrible mistake, in my estimation. They believe the right things. They just never go any farther and find out why they believe what they believe. I believe in the plebeian return of Christ. Why? Because Bob said so? I believe the King James Bible is the Word of God. Why? Because you heard it on Thursday night Bible study? Well, I believe in the pre-tribulation rapture. Really? Well, I believe in eternal security. I believe that. Really? Can you explain spiritual circumcision to get there? I don't believe you get baptized by water in a, in a, in a being, being baptized. Really? Can you go to the scriptures and prove it? I was talking to a person one time that charismatic believed in speaking in tongues. And I said, I said, you know what? And they said, I know you. He said, I know you don't believe in speaking in tongues. And I said, well, it isn't what I don't believe in. The Bible doesn't teach it. And he looked at me and he said, well, you know what? You can't deny my experience. I said, sure I can. I said, why do you guys always put the burden of proof on me to prove that tongues are wrong? Here. Threw my Bible in his lap and I said, go to that book and show me where it's right. He didn't have a clue where to go. He thought an apostle and epistle was a husband and wife in the Bible. <laughs> he thought Noah's wife was Joan of Arc. He had no clue. They always want to put the burden on me or you. Well, you can't deny my experience. Sure I can. Here, prove to me you know why you're doing what you're doing or are you just doing it because it feels good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Crazy, man. People are nuts. Problem is, you've got to be half nuts to even deal with them today. So that's my problem. We talk about the cults. Jehovah Witness, Mormon, Church of Christ, Charismatics. But I want to tell you something. You're going to find that many of them are saved. Been my experience in 40-some years. Many of them are former Baptists that I've talked to that went to a Baptist church when they were young, got, actually got saved, but never got developed and never got a sound uh, uh, faith in anything, and then got hit up with a Jehovah Witness or a water dog and didn't know why they believe what they believe, and they talked them right out of it, and now they're part of the most demonic, godless organization on the face of the planet, and they're a born-again child of God. You better find out why you believe what you believe at some point in your life. All right, the fourth thing. Now, when you get the first three down in your life, you'll start to see a change now because of the doctrine in your life, the mind that you now have, and the faith that you now have. Those all are internal. They're inside you. But when they manifest themselves outwardly, now you get, number four, sound words. It's a word study. What's inside will always come out 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13 says, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Jesus Christ. Listen. You ever listen to the difference between a, just a Christian talk and somebody who really believes and knows what he believes and the way he talks or she talks? Bible talks about key words or the way to unlock the scriptures. We got it in our book back there. In the Word of God, you'll find phrases like the words of understanding. The words of love, the words of the pure, the certainty of words, words of truth, words of knowledge, acceptable words, wholesome words, 
words of life, sweet words, words of light, pure words. And note in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13, the key word here, hold fast the form of sound word. That's a good word. See, you form your thoughts by the words we choose. So he says, <clears throat> hold fast the form <clears throat> of sound word. Whatever's in your mind is going to come out through your, through your words, and you have to form them based on what you've got on the inside. You form the thoughts by the words we choose. You express an idea. You reveal who you really are. Sound doctrine will always lead to a sound mind, which will always lead to a sound faith, and that will bring sound words because you know what you're talking about. You're sound. You've got doctrine. Now, the fifth one. <clears throat> the next will be sound speech. When you get sound words, you put these words into speech. What you say, conversation, dialogue, talking. And now you speak the things of God in a conversation. Titus 2, 8 says, Sound speech that cannot be condemned, that he that is of the contrary part may be ashamed, having no evil thing to say of you. And you know why he says that the way he says it? Because you can't argue with truth. You can't. You say, well, I was at an argument. No, no, no. You cannot argue with truth. Only the other person can do is deny the truth. There is no argument against truth. Truth will stand. It will stand when you're telling him. It will stand when his life goes to pieces. And it will stand when he's burning in hell for 100 million years. You can't, you, can't, you can't argue the truth. All you can do is deny it. When you have sound words, you use words to form speech. Learning the Bible is like when we all went to grade school. We wanted to learn how to read and write. My fondest memories of going to school when I was a young kid <coughs> was in my early first, second, and third grades. I remember two things about my early school years. <coughs> One was the al- Jim. Notice how the alphabet is all around the top of the school thing, all around the room. And then the other thing was a half-finished picture of George Washington. Can never figure why they finished that picture. And I often wondered why they put up the ABCs up around the top of that, that thing. And then I figured it out. That's because they knew that most kids at that age were always looking around anyhow, so they might as well look at the ABCs. <laughs> hey, you remember where it was? Before you ever could speak, you used to take those big mimeograph papers and write A, capital, A, lowercase. B, ap, capital, B, lowercase. You'd do that whole thing. And then you'd come to the place where you'd spend so much time with it that you'd memorize them. A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K, L, M, P, Q, R, S, T, U, B, W, X, Y, Z. You'd get them all down. <laughs> I spent more time on that than I did putting this message together. <laughs> then you know the next thing you did? You took those individual letters and you formed just one syllable words. Dog. Cat. House. And then the next step was you took those one syllable words and put them in short sentences. I saw the cat. Cat saw the dog. Dog killed the cat. <laughs> See? It's simple stuff like that. Then in time, you got to take those little things and you got more sophisticated and you began to have longer sentences, multi-syllable words, paragraphs, Sentence structure became in then. And by the time you got into high school, now you're writing essays, theme papers, book reports, 
a total use of words and your language. Same way with the Word of God. You learn to build it into sound speech. Example, you come here and you get saved. Or maybe you already saved but just never had anybody spend any time with you in the Bible. So you know nothing about the Bible. So you come here, you get discipled. Somebody invests in your life, you get discipled. After you go through the 10 lessons, you begin to get a handle on it. And then somebody says, hey, we're going to disciple so-and-so. I want you to go back through with me, and I want you to teach the lesson this time. So now you do that. And then you, you, you go back through again with, with somebody else. And by that time, now you're ready to take somebody by yourself. And then now John Busquette says, hey, we got the mission tonight. Why don't you come down and give a testimony? So you stand up, and now you give a little more formal approach to things. Next thing you know, you say, you know what, Bob? <coughs> I'd like to take a prayer group next time. Now you're really using them. Then you see what's going on around here, and you say, ma'am, I want to get on that Lincoln team. I want to go to Wichita. I want to go down to Clinton. And you get down there, and you get in the mix of doing those things and using those things. And now, once you get to that process in your life of starting with the ABCs of discipleship, and now you're giving testimonies, you're preaching sermons, you're discipling people, you're understanding the Bible, you're now ready for anything. That's how it works. I've always wondered why I've seen God's people, I've seen guys and gals who've been saved for 20, 30 years, 40 years. And they're in churches where they ought to be, the, some of those women ought to be the leaders among other women. Some of those men ought to be the leaders among other men. They know more, they've been around more, they've seen more, they have great experience They ought to be the ones that are taking the young ones under their wing and helping them and showing them. But you know what? They never get there. You know why? They never learn the alphabet themselves. They're great people. Great people. They're like the person at the airport, always selling tickets. They just never take the trip themselves. They're always putting out about how great it is to be a Christian. But you just never take the trip yourself and learn that book. Now, the sixth thing. The sixth thing, we'll go back to Proverbs chapter uh, 3, uh, verse 26 and 27. And this will be instructions to a son from the father. And this one will be sound wisdom and sound discernment. Proverbs 2, 7 says, For the Lord giveth wisdom. Out of his mouth cometh knowledge and understanding. He layeth up sound wisdom for the righteous. He is a buckler to them that walketh uprightly. Proverbs 3.21 says, My son, let them not depart from thine eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. Now, this will be your ability to clearly see and understand how to use all that you've learned. What's the point of learning it if you don't learn how to use it? It's like buying a car but never getting your driver's license. You can look at it sitting in the park in your garage in your driveway, and boy, you can just say, that is a beautiful car, I love it, but you can't ever go anywhere in it. And you have your Bible, and you say, oh, I love the King James Bible, all the way, but you can't go anywhere in it. Sound wisdom, knowing the truth that you have been taught. You have it down. You have a doctrinal base. Discernment, the ability to know when and how to use that truth. All right, number seven. 
When you get these six in your life and building on each other through the Bible doctrine, not your personal preference, now you'll get to a, here we are, sound heart. Seven steps, seven little word studies. You have now the right doctrine, the right mind, the right faith, the right words, the right speech, the right wisdom and understanding, and the right discernment. And it's all built on the number one thing that the Bible's profitable for, sound doctrine. What the Bible teaches and how you apply, where you apply it, when you apply it, or when you don't apply it in any different situation. Everything in life becomes crystal clear now. You may not be able to fix the problem, but you clearly understand what the problem is and even know why you can't fix it. Now, David talked about this time that should be in our lives in Psalms 119, you might know, in verses 97 through 104, when he wrote this, Oh, how I love thy law, it is my meditation all the day. Thou through thy commandments hath made me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for their testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the ancients because I keep thy precepts. I have refrained my feet from every evil way that I might keep thy word. I have not departed from thy judgments, nor hast taught uh, that thou hast taught me. How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through thy precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. Loving the word of God. Loving it, verse 98, makes you wiser than your enemies because they're always going to be around you. They're always going to be against you. Smarter than the problem. Verse 99, loving the word of God, more understanding than all your teachers. You excel past the people who teach you. By the end of your seven years, into your 10th year, you ought to know the Bible better than I do. You're younger, you're smarter, you're quicker, you're faster, and you got better brain cells than I got. More understanding than all your teachers. Verse 106, understand more than the ancients. There's Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, Esophagus. He was tough to swallow. <laughs> And now you have a sound heart. Verse 101, I refrain my feet from every evil way. Verse 102, I will not depart from thy judgments. 104, hate every false way. Well, why? Because your heart is sound. Now you have a sound heart. You love his precepts. And yet you know why you do. Today the Christian world cannot understand or even grasp the distinction between proper intellectual approach to things and actually just loving a book. How I can be completely, totally in love with a book written on paper with ink. I was written to a Catholic one time and trying to tell him how to be saved and tell him that you didn't have to bow down to a pope. And I was trying to make the importance of how important the word of God was. And he looked at me and he said, you know what? There's not much no difference between me and you. You got a paper pope. I said, amen, but at least mine's infallible and sinless. That's more than I can say for yours, pal. You betcha I do. I got a book that I can hold in my hand that I'll judge all else in the world by, this one book. Totally inconceivable to them. You know, Christianity today is much like the ancient Roman Empire. The ancient Roman Empire, they looked at Christianity, and most people don't even know this. One of the reasons why they hated it so much is because Christianity only claimed to have one God. The Roman Empire had 400, 500 gods. And they looked at Christianity as a poor man's religion. And they hated it because they thought the more gods you had, the more godly you were. And the fact that you only had one God, you couldn't be right, couldn't be true. And yet, you know, Christian world looks at that today. It's the same thing. I got one Bible. They got 300. 
And they think the truth is in their 300 and they look at me with disdain because I know it's just in one. That's okay. A sound heart for a Christian is simply you and me getting God's heart. Now look quickly at the last part of this verse here. But envy, the rottenness of bones. Now this is the great principle. Envy is wanting what somebody else has that you want. In the context, it will be somebody envying what else somebody has with God that they don't have. A great example of this would be Saul and David. Saul hated David because he was envious of David, because David had favor with God and Saul did it. You saw it with Cain and Abel. Cain was envious of Abel's sacrifice. See it all through the Bible. See it all through life. They want it, but they're not willing to pay the price to get it the right way or the biblical way because that process requires being a workman. Somebody said one time that envy is the cancer of Christianity. I think that's probably true because envy slowly eats away at everything you have and then you lose it. Somebody said one time where poverty will desire some things, luxury will desire many things, envy will desire all things. A lot of truth in that. I've seen young guys and gals want to get married. They see other young couples that are married, and they get envious of them. And they get envious because they're impatient, and they want to be married, and I understand all that, and there's nothing wrong with that. But so instead of of using the principles like found in Genesis chapter 24, they just go ahead and find some guy or find some gal and get married and then have an absolutely miserable life. You know what the principle is? You're better off wanting something you don't have than having something you don't want. I'm just full of wisdom today. <laughs> Don't envy a soldier's medals until you face the combat he has. Don't envy an athlete's trophies until you went through the extreme training that he has. And when it comes to the Bible, it's commendable to want to learn it, to know it, be able to use it. I commend you for that. But you have to work it out on your own, and you can't learn the Bible in somebody else's spirituality. You will have a heart attack faster than you ever know. I've seen people all my life that came to church. They did all kinds of stuff. They did good things. They were good people. They were great people. They just never cracked that book. They never discipled anybody. They never invested their life anybody. And then they get their nose bent and enjoyed about something. They start feeling sorry for themselves because they don't have anything. You don't have anything because you're not doing anything. Heart attack. Stroke. Heart disease. Envy is the rottenness of the bones. Now, in your human body, your bones represent the structure of your body. It'll hold you up and hold you together. You get a bone disease, it it will weaken the bones and in time will affect everything that you do. And in a spiritual sense, envy will weaken your structure that you need to have with God. The structure that God gave you is the local church devil would like to see you get out of this church. He'd like to have you go find another church that is a dead church where you can go and nobody ever challenge you about the Bible. That you can just live comfortable and be what you want to be and and puff yourself up, have your personal preferences, say I'm okay. And deep down inside, there's a rottenness in your bones and your structure is going to collapse. It's just that simple. Envy will take your focus off the process that God wants to put in your life. 
Envy will get you to start focusing on the wrong things. Envy will start to get you feeling sorry for yourself. Wanting what somebody else has and then getting upset about it because you don't have it because you think you deserve it. I think the greatest downfall for God's people, and it has to do with envy. And I tell you this all the time, and I think it's an absolutely the most fundamental, truest statement that why God's people have heart problems, heart failure, heart attacks, and stroke. We just go through life always focusing on the things we don't have and never focus on the things that we do have. And that'll kill you every time. Every time. A spiritual heart condition will cause a weakening of your structure in life. And in time, maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, may take a few years, several years, but that structure will collapse around you. It will fall to ashes, and everything that you think will hold you up will fail you. Because I'm going to tell you right now, there's only one thing that will hold you up, and that is a sound heart. And that follows the process of getting sound doctrine, getting a sound mind, getting a sound faith, right down the line, that building a strong heart. And when I build people, in my preaching, in my teaching, whatever I do, I go after those seven things. That's the way you build a church. Not a building, people. God told me a while back, He was having struggles in his church. Struggles because of his own problems. Somebody had left him four or five hundred thousand dollars. And he was just as happy as could be. And he was telling me about it, and he was telling me how that, uh, boy, God, uh, you know, that he had lost a lot of people, but that God had given him a half a million dollars. And I just looked at him and I thought to myself, you know what, pal? I'd rather have the people. Every one of those people were worth a hundred million dollars. And you lost them to settle for a penance. You're invaluable. Every one of you is invaluable. You're invaluable to God, first of all. You're invaluable to this church, second of all. And lastly, you're invaluable to me. I see. It's my job. It's what I do. I see the value in each one of you. The problem is you do not see that same value in yourself. And you sell yourself short. And you'll never get to the place where you're sound in anything in your life because you won't start the process. You won't put the ABCs together to get to the point where you can develop the English language into an art form. Well, we'll hold up there today.